We are, Tony is walking, I am wheeling. We're going up the middle of the street that the American Academy in Berlin is on. Because it's a little hard wheeling on some of these German sidewalks that have a lot of cobblestones. That Spring 2019 Holtspring Fellow at the American Academy, Ann Finger, based in Oakland, California, Ann is a writer of fiction and nonfiction. She's the author of several works about disability, including Elegy for a Disease, which is a personal and cultural history of polio. In this episode of Beyond the Lecture, Anne is going on a trip to an old abandoned Nazi psychiatric institution with our producer Tony Andrews. Along the way, they meet up with Andreas Heckler, whose great-grandmother was sent to a facility just like it. In the process, they confront some disturbing history for both Germany and America, and reflect on the politics of memory playing out in both countries today. We'll let Tony tell you the rest of the story. So it's a cold spring morning. Anne and I are making our way through tree-lined streets flanked by historic villas. This is also the area of town where the Vonsi Conference was held, which was where the bureaucracy of the final solution was put in place. So um, I'm just struck by how history is kind of embedded in geography. These places that we're going to or coming from have this historical weight. And now here comes a car. We wind our way through the streets and down the elevator to catch our train. Is this our train? Yeah. We're on the train towards book, and um, I'm working hard on saying that word right. I've been told I'm supposed to say it like I'm, I've got popcorn stuck in my throat. <laughs> um, and we're headed towards um, an abandoned or semi-abandoned um, psych institution, insane asylum, whatever we want to talk, call it, that's on the outskirts of, of Berlin. I'm interested in this place for a couple of reasons, just, um, just kind of seeing the physical remnant of an old psychiatric re regime and what that was like. Um, and um, I'm also very interested in kind of abandoned spaces and that kind of mix of nature taking over what humans have built. On our trip we have to change trains, which is when we run into some trouble looking for an elevator. Which train? S2? Okay, so there's the sign for the S2. So the elevator should be famous last words right around here somewhere. I run down the stairs and have to ask several people for directions before I'm able to figure it out. Okay, I found okay. it, but it's super hidden. It's here. Finally I do, but it looks like we're in a forgotten part of the station. Yeah, you, you sure don't feel like you're... We're going by these um, lockers, these piles of uh, stacks of... Uh, what do you call it? Sheetrock. Sheetrock. Construction. Construction material. And then here is our elevator. On the next train, Anne tells me more about why this particular psychiatric facility interests her. There's a novel and also a um, long TV series that Fassbinder made um, based on the novel um, by Alfred Dublin. 
um, Berlin Alexanderplatz. The novel story. focuses on the life of the protagonist, Franz Bibelkopf. The novel begins when Franz leaves Tegel Prison, where he's been imprisoned for killing his girlfriend. Then it ends at book when he is um, essentially has a kind of psychic collapse and ends up there. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in the way that history, both kind of literal history and literary history, get embedded in landscapes. As we sit on the train, the tall buildings out the windows are replaced by suburban homes and then green fields as we approach the margins of the city. I think that notion of what gets put on the outskirts, what gets abandoned, um, is really central to the novel, what, what we don't want to look at, um, what we want to pretend didn't happen. A key part of Anne's research is also an analysis of Joseph Goebbels, the head of propaganda in the Nazi party. Goebbels was repeatedly described by historians as having a quote-unquote club foot. Anne points out that his disability was often taken to connote something sinister. I think it's a way of, of using disability as a marker of evil, of um, saying this person was twisted, bent, deformed. What I'm particularly interested in looking at is how it's a way of making Nazism pure evil, which of course it was pure evil, but it also had roots in so many different, um, it, it didn't kind of just come up out of hell, it, it had roots in... Um, it was decontextualized. Right, yeah, it, it, it had roots, many roots. She's also interested in looking at the connections between German Nazis and anti-Semites in the U.S. before the war. For example, prominent American industrialist Henry Ford. Ford is one of the few individuals, or I think he's the only American who's mentioned in Mein Kampf, and he's praised. And there was a point where um, Ford was thinking about running for the presidency, and Hitler said, I wish I could send my, my, my men to Chicago to campaign for Henry Ford, Heinrich Ford. There were even instances in which the Nazis were inspired by American racist policies. Like the, the initial Nuremberg law about sterilization took almost exactly its text from a model sterilization law in the U.S. And many um, eugenicists were, in the U.S. were very fervent supporters of the sterilization. And, um, which led to um, not just the sterilization, which was bad enough, but also to the, to the killing of patients. Attention, please. We are now approaching the last stop on the line. All passengers are requested to leave the train. Once we arrive at the station, we head to the asylum just a few blocks away. We're on our way to meet my friend, uh, Andreas Heckler, whose great-grandmother was a victim of the... Nazi euthanasia program, and um, that's what it was called. I always feel so strange using that term because euthanasia means literally beautiful death, and um, these deaths certainly weren't beautiful. Um, patients were moved to killing centers, um, herded into gas chambers that were um, some of the same gas chambers that were later used in the concentration camps, in the death camps. But as we get closer, the little dot on the GPS app on my phone indicates that we should be at the site, except it looks nothing like the pictures on the internet. Instead of rundown buildings being reclaimed by nature, we see well-maintained ones with majestic columns. Pretty much the only people we see on the street 
are mothers with strollers walking their babies. We approach one to ask for directions. Also es sollte 50 sein diese Straße. Darf ich mal einmal spielen ja, gerne. ein bisschen? Ach so, das ist das große mit Oddly, she's never heard of the facility, but directs us to a building that she recognizes in a picture I show her. As we move through the buildings, we're struck by how almost fancy everything looks. We're definitely in the right place, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, but it's clearly been sanitized. Many of the buildings here look quite, quite lovely, um, or maybe even grand. And I think often asylums had that outer appearance, especially because they were often built to house a certain number of patients, and then they got much more crowded. So that you would have, um, you know, you might have lovely Grecian pillars in front, and then inside you would have wards that were crowded with people, people who were undergoing sometimes quite brutal attempts to cure them of their illness. Um, there was hydrotherapy. There were was electrical therapy. Um, there was um, insulin coma. Um, so often you have this rather strange um, dichotomy between how things look from the outside and what's actually going on inside. And soon we meet up with Andy. That's Andy. Hi, Andy. <laughs> Did you know it wasn't abandoned or you, you just could see when you got here? I kind of looked, I mean, I kind of read and read stuff about, like not very much, but what I saw is that they try to turn this whole area of Buch into kind of a, like residential area connected to businesses and stuff like that. We do see one building that looks like the last building in the vicinity to be refurbished. There is brick that's covered by stucco, but it's chipped away in some places so you can see the brick. There's a fair amount of graffiti. The one word that um, we're able to read is gay. Everything else is just odd graffiti symbols. It does seem a way that the history of this place is being disappeared. After inspecting the site, we head into one of the quiet courtyards to talk to Andy about his great-grandmother. My name is Andreas Hechler. Most people call me Andy. And I'm the great-grandson of Emilia Rau. And uh, Emilia Rau was murdered in 1941 in Hadamar. And in the past years, I have dealt a lot with that specific part of my family history. Andy says that to this day, there is still a lot of reluctance in Germany to talk about the murder of some victims, specifically people with disabilities who were quote-unquote euthanized. So there are estimations that in about every eighth German family, there is a case of National Socialist Euthanasia. And most families do not know about it and do not want to know about it and do not speak about it. What do and you know about your great-grandmother? So Emilia Rau was born in 1891 in Hesse. That's a state in southern Germany. Uh, she married at age 21 a man named Christian Rau. They had four children, um, the oldest one being my grandmother, you know, as far as, like, from what I learned from medical records on the one hand and from family narratives within my family, she got hospitalized for the first time in 1931 for... And now it gets, it gets a bit unclear why, but for some kind of depression, as far as I understood. And then was, like, on and off in institutions...
As Andy mentioned, his great-grandmother was sent to a facility in a town called Hadama, an area that was involved in the Nazi euthanasia program euphemistically called T4. So Hadama had nine intermediate um, institutions um, where people during the phase of T4 were, um, you know, with the so-called grey buses. Like every day the grey buses would go from Hadama to one of those nine intermediate wards, get, get those people who were selected, transfer them to Hadama and, and kill them right away. None of Andy's great-grandfather's attempts to free his wife were successful. He really tried to fight to like get her out of those institutions, which is interesting. So I have letters written by him continuously trying to get her out and are trying to, like really fighting for better living conditions of her. In light of this history, it's clearly very difficult for Andy to be in a place like Buch. <laughs> like honestly, I don't like going to Buch. Like really, uh, it's, 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 it's a kind of a poison area to me. Like really, I'm... But also very much because they did all those, um, they did all those, they they did all this research on 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 brains, and on other body parts, from victims of National Socialist euthanasia. He tells us about the ways in which the medical profession benefited from the Nazis' policies. I mean, especially this whole brain history is very important. So Germany was one of the leading countries in brain research and National Socialism gave a tremendous kick, so to speak, so, because they had unlimited supply of material mm -hmm. from the camps and the, and the me mental institutions. The Buch campus belonged to a large group of medical facilities that conducted this kind of brain research known as the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Andy reads from an analysis by historians who researched the institute's involvement in the euthanasia program. So this is written by Hans-Walter Schmuel, who is an important researcher on National Socialist Euthanasia in Germany. So I'm just going to read out a, f a few sentences. In the years from 1940 to 1945, some 700 human brains emanating from mentally diseased or disabled victims of the Nazi euthanasia were examined by scholars at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Brain Research in Berlin. The institute was linked to the apparatus of euthanasia in a variety of ways. A tight network of relations between brain research and psychiatric clinics in and around Berlin emerged. In addition, the decision to participate in research pertaining to euthanasia was considerably influenced by the military structures that had developed within the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Brain Research since 1939. These documents lead Andy to conclude that the classic Nuremberg defense of saying, quote unquote, I was only following orders, cannot credibly be used by many 20th century doctors. They were not forced. Doctors had the highest degree of membership in the Nazi party, like as compared to any other, uh, I mean, as to any other profession. Mm -hmm. It's not that the Nazis needed the doctors or the scientists, but the other way around. The doctors needed the Nazis. 
Another troubling dimension to Andy's story is how much silence still surrounds the euthanasia program. Andy's grandmother, Emilia Rao's daughter, joined an organization called the Federation of People Aggrieved by Euthanasia and Forced Sterilization to try to address the silence. She faced fierce backlash for her efforts. Like back then, it was extremely difficult to speak about it. And she even got attacked. You know, she received those... I mean, nowadays you, you would say hate speech. Mm -hmm. But back then she received letters, like in her letter box at home, like really cussing at her and being like super aggressive and like like telling her to quit doing what mm -hmm. she's doing. Andy says that the stigma associated with mental disability trickled down through the generations, ultimately reaching him today. In a way, outing yourself as someone who is a descendant of someone who was killed, mm -hmm. it might happen that people do not hear, oh, or think, oh, what an injustice. <laughs> but people hear, um, oh, you're someone who is a descendant of someone who was in a psychiatry, so maybe you yourself have a screw loose. The stigma spread out to affect many more of Andy's family members. The second and third generation had difficulties in marrying, and I find that important to mention. So my grandmother had, had difficulties marrying her husband, her, her future husband. Because um, his family opposed it, or...? No, but uh, she married in the late 30s, oh. and back then you needed to have a certificate that mm -hmm. stated that you're healthy, and she had difficulties getting that. And also, usually when there were newlyweds, they would get a dowry, right. and they didn't get that. And, and the dowry came from the state. Yeah. yeah. And also she couldn't study. Mm. So all of that is connected to her mother being institutionalized. But also, and this is actually something that I didn't know, that I just heard not too long ago, that my aunt had difficulties marrying my uncle, which was almost 20 years after National Socialism. Mm. Um, and where did that difficulty arise? Was that... Family opposition yes, on his that family. Was definitely. So in his family, there are a bunch. There's a bunch of doctors, mm. and they definitely opposed. And then there is this quote that they said that, in a way, stuck with me. Uh, they said, "The insanity is on the Hechler side." Mm. You know, Hechler is my last name. Right, yeah, so the insanity is on the Hechler side, which is a, 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 like a really, it's a quote with weight mm -hmm. in a way it's a, and uh, you know it's a very mean quote i think yeah. before we leave Anne and andy outline just how integral the euthanasia program and doctors were to carrying out the holocaust people have no idea of what the nazi euthanasia program was that patients were killed and that it was really foundational to the holocaust itself i mean the holocaust really was based on a medical model there were doctors standing on the ramp at Auschwitz when the trains came in. And it was doctors who made the decision, these people go to the gas chamber, these people go to work. I mean, it was a medicalized decision. And I think there's so much ignorance of that. Um, there's a direct link between the T4 program and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So it was, so the, so the killing technique itself, gas chambers, was invented or like kind of tried out with disabled people, um, it then the um, I mean even some of the apparatuses then were transferred to Treblinka 
Beljek and Sobibor, so the action Reinhardt, so the first three extermination camps. Also the staff from the T4 was transferred to those three extermination camps. Because they were trained, they knew the procedures, they worked well. After our discussion, we pack up and head out of the housing complex. On our way, we pass a couple of residents who say that they've never heard of the Buch Psychiatric Hospital or the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. It's the middle of the day, so the place is very quiet. The only sound to disrupt the peace is the bustle of a nearby kindergarten. That's it for this episode of Beyond the Lecture. You can listen to more of our interviews with American Academy fellows and distinguished visitors on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced and narrated by Tony Andrews. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. Thanks for listening. <laughs>